0: The theme for the talk this evening is not knowing. There's something very mysterious occurring right here and now in this moment that we're in. We are conscious, aware Being touched by the experiences of the five senses, sights, sounds, smells, tastes and touches. Being touched by the inner experiences of the mind, thoughts, feelings. And really, if we look at it honestly, we don't know how it's happening. We don't really know what this is. And we can look at the, the process, we can describe it we can give names to the different parts but actually do we know what's happening? do we really understand what it is? this phenomena, this experiencing, this being conscious, being here do we really know what that is? how did it come to be this way? and why? These are mysteries we really don't know if we step outside on an evening such as tonight and look outside at the sky how can we really say that we know what this is? How can we bring it into the limits of a label or a concept stars what's that? when we look up there and there's these bright lights and someone's told us perhaps that with their telescopes they saw them and they know that they're stars but that's not what the experience is the experience is just out there somehow and we're here somewhere experiencing it So we have to be very careful not to limit our experience to the concept by which we describe it, to the knowledge by which we seek and sometimes believe we succeed in describing it. To not limit this world to the concepts we use. We have the the habit and the tendency to meet this world through those concepts, through thoughts, through thinking about the experiences. And very easily, through this habit, through this tendency, to approach our experience indirectly, through the thought about the experience, we come to believe that this is the way it is we come to subscribe to the idea that these thoughts actually represent actuality that these ideas really do have something to say about what is true and we forget that in all our ideas and our thoughts and our explanations we are constantly making assumptions we might be assuming that the scientist was looking in the right end of the telescope to tell us that the star was out there somewhere. We might be just assuming some fact that we haven't paid attention to because we think that everyone agrees with it, so it must be true. But those assumptions underpin all of the knowledge, all of the concepts, all of the constructs of intelligence. And because of those assumptions, it's just not reliable. And yet, we can be fascinated with the pursuit of knowledge, with the pursuit of ideas and information. We can consume our life in this pursuit. There's a a nice story that I heard from a, a teacher in India and it regards a, a scholar who goes on a, a journey on a boat. And this learned scholar is going on a cruise and he hires, hires a sailor to take him on this cruise. And the sailor and the boat set off. And on the first day, the scholar comes up to the sailor and says, tell me, sailor, have you studied oceanography the study of the ocean and the sailor said oh, no, I can't say I have the scholar says a sailor? you haven't studied oceanography? you've wasted your life you've wasted a quarter of your life he said and the sailor said oh dear wow. went on with the sailing and the, the second day the, the scholar came up to the sailor and said tell me sailor have you studied meteorology, the study of the weather? And the sailor said, oh, no, I haven't studied that. No, 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 I just sailed the boat. And the scholar looked at him and said, oh, you've wasted half your life. And on the third day, the scholar came to the sailor and said, tell me, sailor, have you studied the stars, astronomy? to chart your way in the, the sailor film, oh no I haven't studied astronomy and the scholar oh dear I'm afraid you've wasted three quarters of your life and on the fourth day far out to sea the sailor comes rushing up to the scholar very excited sir have you studied swimology yeah. <laughs> and the scholar said oh no 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 I've been too busy studying matters of importance to have time for that sort of trivial interest I don't know how to swim and the sailor said well I'm afraid you've wasted your whole life (laughs) well the ship is sinking (laughs) so what do we really know what can we really rely upon as being the truth What do we see when we look at this movement towards knowing? We see that knowing is bound up with control that we wish to know, to have knowledge about things, about the world, about ourselves and others in order to be able to exert influence exert control or to manipulate those things those people The idea that I know gives the ability to control, to influence and in that control to provide some security, some safety that knowing is a means of protection that we engage in, in the thinking mind And we can create the appearance and the illusion of security by believing that we know sufficient information to be able to control our circumstances. And this is only an illusion, for we will never know enough to be able to control the incredible variety of different conditions and circumstances that influence us. But still, we persist in it. But in this feeling of security that comes from believing that we know, believing that we can control things, in this feeling of security, what we experience is suffocation. Because we're bringing the idea in between ourselves and our life, in between where we are, and our existence somehow we're we're replacing the actuality the reality with a concept, with a construct for control for security but the result is that we suffocate in the world of security in the world of knowledge (coughs) we don't find any quality of life in that world there's no aliveness because security and control are about fixing things in one place, about taking the life, the variety, the, the chaos out of existence. And that's not possible. And so, to live for security, to seek security as the goal of one's life's movement, this is to be living in death, to be not really alive to be not actually experiencing the life that's there because always the ideas are being given priority the thoughts, the knowledge is being made more important than the actuality, than the reality that is there. And so, we experience fear when we confront the unknown we experience the threat of the loss of control the threat that because we don't know therefore we shall be completely vulnerable to all the dangers that the world presents or that at least it appears to present to us and this this loss of control, if we don't understand the process of holding on to the known to assert control, this fear of loss of control means we hold even more tightly onto the ideas and the concepts. We grasp at them because they provide the security, because they somehow keep us protected from the fear of not knowing, the fear of relinquishing control And also in the fear of the unknown, the fear of not knowing, we experience the fear of the loss of our identity. Because our sense of who we are is very much bound up in knowing, in having ideas and concepts by which we describe ourselves, by which we define ourselves, and by which we seek to give ourselves some solid, separate existence. So the fear of the unknown can also, when we confront the unknown, give rise to a fear of the loss of our identity. So we hold on to and identify with our mind and body Because this is the world of the known, the inner and outer experiences. This is what we experience as the known. And so we grasp onto mind, thoughts, images, feelings, associations. We grasp onto body, sights, sounds, feelings. But knowledge is always based in the past. It's always arising from that which is already gone. It can't come from anywhere else. It's based on associations that are dead and finished that may have no relevance to where we are and to who we are. So it may be important to inquire into what it means to have an open mind, to not hold on to knowledge. i like to quote a Theravadan monk, Nyanaponika, who said in a book published 30 years ago, almost, True wisdom is always young and always near to the grasp of an open mind that has painfully reached its heights and earned its right to hear it an open mind, a mind that isn't holding on to ideas, that isn't grasping at knowledge, that is free from the idea that it already knows, that which is to be understood. If we acknowledge we don't know, we can perhaps look at what it means to not know, If we don't know and yet we pretend to know and act as if we do know, this, I would say, is ignorance. If we're pretending that we know when actually we don't, this is ignorance. But if we don't know, if we are ignorant in the sense of not knowing, but we acknowledge that, we understand that, then this is innocence. And there is a world of difference between these two. So if we meet our experience without making the vast assumption and presumption that we know what it is that we're meeting, how would this change this meeting of our experience? It's a mosquito it should be flying into the room and perhaps landing somewhere upon our skin. And if we think we know what a mosquito is, we probably think, small creature, probably carrying malaria, better get rid of it quick. And perhaps if we don't see that movement in the mind, there's just the reaction, and before we know it, the mosquito is dead. That's the movement of the old mind, the mind bound in knowledge. But if, in this meeting the mosquito, we realise that this creature, we really don't know how, how the heck it's flying around out there. We don't really know what it experiences life to be. We don't. We have no idea. It might be coming in and looking at all these people and thinking, oh, they still listening to Dharma talks, you know. I got over that years ago.
1: <laughs>
0: we don't know what goes on for this mosquito. And yet, if we look at it, we might also see that we can learn something from it. (coughs) We see the mosquito, and it comes looking for something that it wants. Now, it wants your blood or my blood. (laughs) And it's willing to die for it, because the odds are that if it happens to land on on someone who's not aware of it, there's a good risk it's going to get killed looking for that drop of blood. And so we see that our own experience of pursuing our desires, of seeking what we want, it's not something that's just limited to our experience and, seeking, and seeing that it can bring us into the, the realm and the risk of great suffering, and in this case, in this case even death. We see the power of that desire in that creature and perhaps it can teach us something if we meet it fresh every moment, every experience has something to offer if we don't meet it from the mind that thinks it already knows so when we meet this moment with a sense of knowing what it is it's always It's sort of dull, sort of uninteresting because we already know what it is. It's got nothing new to offer. And very easily in that dullness the mind starts seeking for something pleasant to entertain itself. The mind moves in desire because the quality of contact isn't there. The veil of knowing has somehow fallen in front of the experience. But if we don't know, it's, it's fresh, it's new, it's vibrant, it's rich in every moment. And when we enter a situation which is unfamiliar to us, we enter it with care, with interest, to walk into a room in a darkened house that we've never entered before. Do we just rush in and sort of throw ourselves on the seat, which we may not know is there? Or do we, do we walk in carefully, paying attention, being sensitive to see, to investigate, to explore? So this quality of meeting the moment, the object, the experience meeting it from that place of not knowing it, it gives a natural sense of interest, a natural sense of immediacy and care, and attention. Mindfulness is just natural in a situation in which we don't know, in which we're not familiar. (coughs) And likewise, we could consider what it would mean to meet ourselves and to meet other people without the assumption that I know who I am, without the assumption that I know who you are, how would that affect the way we relate, the way we interact with ourselves and others? If we believe that we know who we are. Say, because in the past I've been successful, I've managed to succeed at what I wanted to do, if I from that make the assumption that I am successful then should I meet with failure in my next endeavour? if I hold on to the idea that I'm successful there will be struggle and pain there will not be the capacity to accept the failure and the suffering comes out of the holding on to the idea of who I am similarly, if I have an idea a fixed idea of who I am in some negative description. Say, because in the past i felt to be under the influence of fear. Fear has been a difficult thing for me. If from that I make the assumption that I am fearful in some fixed way, then when in the situation where courage may spring forth, I won't believe it, I won't trust it. I'll think, oh, it can't be me, I'm not courageous, no. I'm a fearful person, but that may not be the truth. It may have described a situation in the past, but it may not have been a full description, and it may not take into account the factor of change, that who I was is not who I am, nor who I will be. It's just what happened in one instance in the past. And the same could be said of any other person. Do we, do we too easily give in to the tendency to fix people in a certain way? And how much pain is caused for ourselves and others when we do that to them? When we expect them to be in the way that we used to know them? Ah, oh, that's not the way you really are. That's not who I know. That's not my friend. That's somebody else, we tell them. How much pain there is in that? fixing and holding on to the idea that I know who someone is. If we acknowledge that we don't really know the full picture, we don't really know the whole story of who I am or who you are, there's a certain quality of grace that is brought to the relationship, that is brought to the meeting the meeting of ourselves or another. And I'd like to just read a story which I think rather nicely expresses that. The story concerns a monastery that had fallen upon hard times. Once a great order as a result of waves of anti-monastic persecution in the 17th and 18th centuries and the rise of Secularism in the 19th all its branch houses were lost and it had become decimated to the extent that there were only five monks left in the decaying mother house the abbot and four others all over seventy in age clearly it was a dying order in the deep woods surrounding the monastery there was a little hut that a rabbi from a nearby town occasionally used for a hermitage. Through their many years of prayer and contemplation, the old monks had become just a little bit psychic. So they could always sense when the rabbi was in his hermitage. (coughs) The rabbi is in the woods. The rabbi is in the woods again, they would say and whisper to each other. And as he agonized over the imminent death of his order, it occurred to the abbot at one such time to visit the hermitage and ask the rabbi if by some possible chance he could offer any advice that might save his monastery. The rabbi welcomed the abbot at his hut, but when the abbot explained the purpose of his visit, the rabbi could only commiserate with him. I know how it is he exclaimed the spirit has gone out of the people it is the same in the town almost no one comes to the synagogue anymore so the old abbot and the old rabbi wept together then they read parts of the Torah and spoke quietly about deep things the time came when the abbot had to leave they embraced each other It has been a wonderful thing that we should meet after all these years, the abbot said. But I have still failed in my purpose for coming here. Is there nothing you can tell me? No piece of advice you can give me which would help me to save my dying order? No, I am sorry, the rabbi responded. I have no advice to give. The only thing I can tell you is that the Messiah is one of you. When the abbot returned to the monastery, his fellow monks gathered round him to ask, well, what did the rabbi say? He couldn't help, the abbot answered. We just wept and read the Torah together. The only thing he did say, just as I was leaving, it was something cryptic. Was that the Messiah? one of us? I don't know what he meant in the days and weeks and months that followed the old monks pondered this and wondered whether there was any possible significance in the Rabbi's words the Messiah is one of us could he possibly have meant that one of us monks here in the monastery is the Messiah
1: <laughs> if
0: that's the case which one? <laughs> do you suppose he meant the abbot yes if he meant anyone he probably meant father abbot he has been our leader for more than a generation on the other hand he might have meant brother thomas certainly brother thomas is a holy man everyone knows that thomas is a man of light certainly he couldn't have meant brother elred <laughs> Elred gets crotchety at times but when you come to think of it even though he is a thorn in people's signs when you look back on it is almost always right <laughs> often he's very right maybe the rabbi did mean brother Elred. but surely not brother Philip Philip is so passive a real nobody but then almost mysteriously. He has a gift for somehow always being there when you need him. He just magically appears by your side. Maybe Philip is the Messiah. Of course, the rabbi didn't mean me. He couldn't possibly have meant me. I'm just an ordinary person. Yet, supposing he did. Suppose I am the Messiah. not me. I couldn't be that much to you, could I? And as they contemplated in this manner, the old monks began to treat each other with an extraordinary amount of respect. (laughs) On the off chance that one amongst them (laughs) might be the Messiah. And on the off-off chance that each monk himself might be the Messiah, (laughs) they started to treat themselves with an extraordinary amount of respect. Because the forest in which it was situated was beautiful, it so happened that people still occasionally came to visit the monastery, to picnic on its tiny lawn, to wander along some of its paths, even now and then to go into the dilapidated chapel and meditate. As they did so, without even being conscious of it they sensed this aura of extraordinary respect that now began to surround the five old monks and seemed to radiate out from them and permeate the atmosphere of the place. There was something strangely attractive even compelling about it. Hardly knowing why they began to come back to the monastery more frequently, to picnic, to play, to pray. They began to bring their friends to show them the special place. And their friends brought their friends. Then it happened that some of the younger men who came to visit the monastery started to talk more and more with the old monks. After a while, one asked if he could join them, and then another, and another and within a few years the monastery had again become a thriving order and thanks to the rabbi's gift a vibrant centre of light and spirituality in the realm we may want to ask ourselves Do we really know that we're not the Messiah? (laughs) Do we really know? We can laugh, but do we know? Do we know? To hold on to any idea of who we are, any idea of what this is, is to limit the possibility of discovering. For what we are is beyond any concept, beyond any knowledge. And if we are so bold as to believe, so foolish as to believe that our ideas of who we are, that our ideas of what all of this is, really describe it, really capture and contain it, then we're doing ourselves a disservice. When we hold on to the idea of who we are, when we hold on to the idea of what this is, we leave no space for discovery. We leave no space for being touched. the end of knowledge to realize that to which knowledge has nothing to say we can hold on to no idea no concept no train of thinking can take us there no construct of information and knowledge is of any use at all not any use at all are we willing to put it aside? are we willing to say that for now I'm going to meet this experience directly I'm going to meet this moment intimately unclouded by the ideas not letting the knowledge become a filter between experience and reality I'd like to read a piece from 7th century Taoist Seng Chan. If you don't live the Tao the way, you fall into assertion or denial. Asserting that the world is real, you are blind to its deeper reality denying that the world is real, you are blind to the selflessness of all things. The more you think about these matters, the further you are from the truth. Step aside from all thinking and there is nowhere you cannot go. Returning to the root, you find the meaning. Chasing appearances, you lose their source. Don't keep searching for the truth. Just let go of your opinions. At the moment of profound insight, you transcend both appearance and emptiness. So, are we willing to let go, to not hold on to the ideas? Have we followed that road enough times already in our life, seeking to control and organise our outer experience, seeking to control and organise our inner experience, seeing the struggle and the conflict that comes from control, that comes from knowing. Have we spent enough time and energy in the world of ideas? Have we been seduced enough times into believing what the mind is saying, into believing the contents of the thoughts? Are we willing to say, no, there's something that's more important, no, there's something that I'm deeply interested in. There's something of true value and significance and that must be the primary concern. Mystical insight into the nature of reality is not a conceptual knowledge. It's a non-conceptual, experiential understanding. It's not a result of meditation. It's not a result of doing anything. It's not a result even of just letting go of ideas. it can't be the result of any effect it can't be bound in that relationship there can be no conditions for the unconditioned and yet to rest in not knowing to fully dissolve the holding onto knowledge to rest Fully in that place where we know that we don't know, that we just don't know. To be there fully. To hold no idea of who I am. To hold to no idea of what all of this is. To be totally uninterested in holding to those ideas. To be committed to holding to no such idea. This allows our heart and mind to become fertile soil for the seed of transforming wisdom that lies within us. This allows our heart and mind to be receptive to the touch of that in which all which we call the world both inner and outer is held. That in which all things, all experiences arise and fall, yet which is neither defined nor confined by any of those things. Entry into this understanding is grace. It's not something we can do. The I just can't do it. There's no way. Because it's not really an entry into or a movement or a creation of anything. The world of I is the world of movement and creation, construction. But this is not of that world. It's much more a cessation, a complete coming to the end of that which obscures or at least has the appearance of obscuring because nothing can really obscure. But has the appearance of obscuring the essential nature of truth, the heart of wisdom. The actuality that is immediately present and available to us right in this moment if we are fully present to it. If we are fully present to what it is revealing. would like to finish with a a poem by a Tibetan master, Kalu Rinpoche. You live in illusion in the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you see this, you will understand that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. All beings realize the emptiness of knowledge. May all beings be touched by mystery. So, could we share a couple of minutes of silence, please?